Hey guys, this is Drake. Thanks so much for tuning in to our City Church podcast here. It's an honor to have you. Hey, at the end of this episode, we'd love for you to take a moment, subscribe to this podcast channel if you haven't already. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel so we can continue to serve you with content that we're putting out on a weekly basis. And in addition, if we can serve you in any way or connect with you in community in any way, you can visit our website at citychurchboulder.com and we would love to connect with you there. And lastly, and most importantly, I hope this content is helpful to you. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about pineapples, but actually just one pineapple in particular. So you see a pineapple is spiky, it's kind of prickly and hard on the outside, right? Uh, But on the inside, it's incredibly sweet. So spiky on the outside, but on the inside, when you take a bite of it. (laughs) Not like that, but when you take a bite of it, it's sweet, right? So I want to introduce this concept because I think that there is a pineapple buried in today's passage. I think that the the passage we're we're going through today is actually going to shed some light um, on one of the biggest pineapples in the Christian walk. Specifically, I'm talking about the exclusivity of following Jesus. I'm talking about when Jesus says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For many people, probably for a lot of you, this is a huge stumbling block when it comes to Christianity, right? For many of you, you might have trouble reconciling the rigidness of this claim with Jesus's sweetness and his kindness. Maybe it seems downright intolerant to you. Maybe for some of you, it seems far too simplistic, right? How could any one person be the sole arbiter of truth, even Jesus? Well, one politician, uh, one particularly eloquent politician had this to say against the exclusivity of Christianity. He said, we gaze up at the same stars The sky covers us all. The same universe encompasses us. Does it matter what practical system we adopt in our search for the truth? The heart of so great a mystery cannot be reached by following one road only. So this probably feels like a familiar sentiment. For many of you, it probably feels like a contemporary sentiment. You might even resonate with it. But this politician lived in the fourth century It was a Roman senator by the name of Symmachus. So I want you to know that if this is a stumbling block for you, you have 2,000 years worth of company. But that's the hard prickly skin of Jesus' teaching. But I believe that this teaching, when we break it open, we taste it, we take a bite out of the pineapple, it's actually incredibly sweet. In fact, I believe when we get our heads into the singularness of Jesus' call, It has the power and the challenge to propel us to be a more outwardly focused community. It has the challenge to help us be a more servant-hearted community. To state my point in summary, if we are a community defined only by our relationship to Jesus, we can and must welcome others because every other difference has become secondary. If we are a community 
defined only by a relationship to Jesus, then every other division has become secondary. Community, true community, is, I think, a miracle, literally. It's through the grace of God that we are transformed into people who can live in community together and then extend that grace to others. But before we get there, if this is a difficult topic for you, I want you to know that you are loved, safe, and welcome here at City Church. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are loved, safe, and welcome here. And I hope today's message will help you cut through the pineapple. Our passage today from Paul's letter to the Philippians gives us the inside view of what this looks like in one of his disciples who has embraced Jesus' exclusive, singular call on his life. You see, Paul's message here is about status and identity. He's redefining for his audience what it means to have status, what it means to find your identity in Jesus. Most of the earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish. They were people who had seen that Jesus had come to fulfill all of God's promises to Israel, but in a radically unexpected way. Israel was the covenant people of God. And from the very beginning of Israel's history, that covenant relationship was defined by God being faithful to the people of Israel and the people of Israel returning that faithfulness through obedience to God. Their obedience was defined in part by their separateness. You see, Israel was called to live differently from the surrounding nations by following the law of Moses. They were called literally to be holy, or set apart to live in a new and different sort of way. But here's the thing. In Jesus, God fulfilled his promises to Israel, all of his promises to Israel, but not just to Israel. He fulfilled these promises through Israel to all the nations of the earth. To put it one way, Jesus kicked the door off its hinges. Jesus opened the kingdom of God to whoever would come follow him. He said that people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. For the early Jewish followers of Jesus, this was a cataclysmic shift. If the people of God were defined by their separateness from the nations, what did it mean for the people of the nations to become the people of God. This was a live issue in the early days of the church. For many, the answer was they should live like the people of Israel by following the law of Moses. Specifically, one of the ways that the law of Moses marked people as being separate was the practice of circumcision. It was a physical sign that this person belonged to the covenant of God. Many non-Jewish Christians were being told that following Jesus meant that they had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. This was exactly the view that Paul was writing against when he wrote, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For Paul, there is one thing and only one thing that marks someone as belonging to the family of God. 
to believe in Jesus and to be filled with his spirit. For Paul, this was really central. This revelation radically redefined his life. Paul's life before meeting Jesus was centered around the keeping of the Torah, and yet he became the apostle to the Gentiles and traveled 10,000 miles across the ancient world over several decades, inviting people to let Jesus redefine their lives too. Paul goes on, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so his argument here is actually incredible. He's not just strutting his stuff, right? He's actually undermining the argument of his opponents by looking at his own life through Jesus-shaped lenses. Remember, his opponents are saying that if someone wants to gain the status of righteousness, they must keep the law of Moses, just like the people of Israel. Paul responds by saying that by your own standards, I come out ahead every time. This list of credentials testifies to just how set apart he was. Some of the weight of his argument might be lost on us due to the unfamiliar words. The word Pharisee here comes from the Aramaic word for separated ones. When you hear zeal, you've got to understand that this is not pep rally zeal, right? In the words of N.T. Wright, zeal in the first century was something that you did with a knife. It was a form of violent opposition to those who were compromising the sanctity and holiness of the people of Israel. Paul himself oversaw as Stephen, an early Jesus follower, was stoned to death because Paul saw the Jesus movement as compromising the people of Israel. This was the picture of zeal in the first century. But when Paul met Jesus, he comes to see that all of these markers are separate, of separateness are now irrelevant. He sees that what his opponents are arguing for is actually less than worthless, right? In fact, they're keeping people from really knowing Jesus because they're inviting people, they're telling people to define their lives by something other than the grace of God in Jesus. And when Paul says that he suffered the loss of all things, he really means it. Right? He was a person with status in his community. Right? He was a scholar, and he was, he was writing this letter from a Roman prison. Right? He lost everything. But Paul measures the value of his old life and everything that he's lost with only one positive mark in the ledger, the value of knowing Jesus. And he says, you know what? It's not even close. Everything that came before, everything that gave him status, he now sees is worthless. So what does this mean for us? I think for most people in the room, the circumcision question won't be hanging over us so heavily, right? I really hope so, because if, if not, I, I prepared the wrong message. <laughs> so, but you see, 
Paul wasn't just writing about the circumcision question. Like I said, he was actually teaching his audience to view questions of status and worth through Jesus-shaped lenses, right? For Paul, the identity we find in Jesus supersedes every other system of worth and value because Jesus died for us without respect to our worth or value. According to the Bible scholar John Barclay, in the ancient world, it was thought that the recipient of a gift should be an honorable person, that they should be chosen carefully so that the gift wasn't wasted. For Jesus, it was exactly the opposite. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The gift of God's grace in Jesus is given to us in no relation to any dimension of worth or value on our part. If the gift of life in Jesus is given without respect to any other marker of worth, then how could we possibly define our core identity, our deepest identity, according to anything other than the supreme worth of knowing him? I want to take this one step farther to help you understand this teaching through the eyes of Paul's audience. So he was writing to the church in Philippi, and Philippi was a Roman colony, and the Romans were obsessed with status. I mean like Rodeo Drive obsessed with status, okay? They had censors. That's not people who would go around censoring people and they said something wrong, but it was people whose job it was to go collect censuses uh, in which they would figure out how much wealth you had and then rank you into a social class based partially on that. Rome was a really good place to be if you had status. To get a taste of this, Read Acts 22. A Roman commander is preparing to torture Paul for, for riling up a crowd with his teaching about Jesus. But then Paul reveals that he was actually born a citizen of Rome. The commander immediately stops the beating, and he actually becomes afraid once he learns about Paul's status. This is the basic duality of Rome. If you had status, you were protected under the law. If you didn't, your protections were minimal, right? If you were a Roman citizen, your rights were protected. But if you were a slave, you could be beaten, sexually exploited, tortured, and executed without trial. As another example of this, consider crucifixion. Romans used the act of crucifixion to control the state. After a slave revolt, a Roman general was estimated to have crucified 6,000 of the rebels. They were hung up naked to die, not just to torture them, but to humiliate them, to remove whatever status they had, to announce to the world that no one could stand against the power of the Roman Empire and the status of its Caesar. These people were the lowest of the low. According to the popular historian Tom Holland, crucifixions occurred far outside the gates of the city because even viewing the act would make a Roman citizen feel tainted. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and rebels, people without status, but Roman citizens were protected, 
even from the sight of crucifixion. This is the society that Paul was speaking to. Imagine what it would be like in this society to hear that every marker of your worth or your status has dissolved. Imagine what it would have been like to be an early Jesus follower in this society. You have Roman slaves worshiping together with Roman citizens, and they're all hearing the same message, that every marker of status you have is worthless, next to the value of knowing Jesus. And then imagine how shocking and scandalous it would have been for this audience, many of whom were likely proud Roman citizens, to hear that they should define their identity in relation to a crucified criminal, the lowest of the low, the dirt of the earth. For a Philippian who literally grew up in the shadow of the cross, not as a symbol, but as a physical reality. Someone who only knew the cross as a brutal human signpost, announcing the glory of the Roman Empire. To hear that Paul, also a Roman citizen, would give up everything to know this crucified man and to share in his sufferings. Friends, I hope that you can appreciate how ludicrous this must have sounded. To accept that would mean that everything you know about reality and your place in it is turned upside down. But here's the crazy thing. Many did come to believe it and it did turn the world upside down. Do you remember our friend Symmachus from earlier, the Roman senator? Well, his argument against Christianity was actually mostly an argument for maintaining the social order. You see, in Rome, one of the ways that they would maintain control of the places they conquered was by allowing them to continue in their worship of their local gods and to incorporate them into the Roman hierarchy of religion. However, they tended to keep their gods on a pretty short leash. Religion was governed by the Roman state. They didn't so much care who you worshiped as long as you participated in the rituals and didn't get too carried away with it. They showed the gods their respect, but the power stayed in Rome. They had countless gods, but none of them could change the Roman Empire. Jesus isn't like that. When you encounter Jesus, when you meet him, you'll quickly discover that he can't be kept on a leash. Friends, the call from Jesus is to abandon every other place that you find your status, your strength, your intelligence, your wealth, your career, your hobbies, your reputation, to see that all of it is worthless next to the value of knowing him. If the call from Jesus to lose everything sounds crazy to you, then good. That means you're really hearing it. This call will never make sense. It would never make sense to say yes to this call until you grasp the nature of God's love for you, until you see the height and the width of it. When you grasp the nature of that love, you'll be so filled by it that you could never again imagine that anything else would provide fulfillment. Everything that you found your worth in, everything that seemed like gain, you'll be able to count as loss. 
because Jesus died for you. He lost every bit of his status for you. He came from glory to lose everything because he valued you more. When you grasp the nature, the glory of God's love for you, every other place that you could look for it pales in comparison. I think this is what St. Augustine meant when he prayed his famous prayer. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The restless heart will look in the strangest places for rest. In my life, for several years, I took a lot of pride in being really wild, especially when I was drunk. So just to give you an example of, of what this looked like, one time in my freshman year of college, uh, I was woken up by a friend who I was supposed to hang out with that day, go climbing with him, uh, but you know, I'd been drinking the night before. So he finds me, and I kid you not, in between each one of my toes, I had a single Skittle tucked in there. <laughs> I don't remember why, uh, but I get up, um, so I'm going to go get dressed so that we can go climbing, uh, and I realize that all of the clothes are gone from my dorm room. So I think you can see this was a ridiculous way for me to try to find worth, right? And looking back on it, I'm able to see that trying to find worth in this way led me to hurt people, and it certainly led me to hurt myself. But the restless heart will look anywhere for rest until it finds its true rest. I found my rest when I grasped that God knew me. I didn't need to attract his attention. Jesus saw me and said, here is one worth dying for. Not because I did anything to earn his love. He died for me, me skittletoes. Right. Wherever you are at, if you feel the call, you should know that Jesus saw you as worth dying for. But you should know that accepting his call will change everything about how you see yourself and your place in the world. The call of Jesus still turns things upside down. In the ancient world, a gift was not a solitary event, it was circular. A gift was given in the hope that it would start a relationship of gift giving. Friends, the grace in Jesus we receive from him is not just a solitary event. It's a relationship. The basis of that relationship is that Jesus gave up his status to find you. For our sins, he suffered the loss of everything to bring us to God. He chose obedience to his father to the point of death even death on a cross, to find you. Responding to that gift, it means returning the gift with faith and obedience to Jesus. It means losing everything in order to find him. I said at the beginning of the message that I would try to help you cut through the pineapple, right? That I would try to help you understand why the exclusive call of Jesus has the power to lead us to be a more outwardly focused community. Every other place that you can find your status involves putting your, yourself over someone or keeping someone else out. It is always a question of us and them. Where do I stand next to you? 
You can try to find your status anywhere else, but ultimately it amounts to where do I stand next to you? How do I stack up? Jesus flips things. He is the highest king who makes himself low, sinking to the utter depths of humanity. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we could stand high. He lived the holy life, the set-apart life, the perfect life, not so that we could be kept out, but so that we could be brought in. I want to challenge you to ask yourself where it is that you find your status, where it is that you find your identity. As Christians, we are all called to the same table every week by one thing and one thing only. There is only one thing that brings us there, Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf. We take communion to remember the death of the one who gave himself for us. In taking it, we are saying that he gave up everything so that he could have me for eternity. We return the gift by saying that I give up everything to find you, Jesus. I want to echo what Paul's saying here as we close out our message. He writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For anyone that knows me, you probably know that my heart is still definitely a mess. But that's why we gather every single week. This is a race that we run together, where we push each other towards the finish line to help each other obey and to live more like Jesus by defining our lives according to the value that he saw in us to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. It is urgent that we get this right. Here are a few practical ways that we can do that. First, be with Jesus. A Jesus-shaped identity can only come from time spent with Jesus. If you're not spending time with Jesus, then he can never surprise you. If you're not spending time with Jesus, you can start to hold him at arm's length. I think that the more time you spend with Jesus, the more he'll surprise you, actually. If we want to let Jesus define our identity, we need to know who he is. We need to meet him every day through time reading in the Gospels, through prayer and meditation. Second, become like Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, we won't ever get there, but we keep running the race. As a church, we have intentional practices that we participate in to help us grow in our faith. One of these is our city groups. We meet together each week for community, accountability, and vulnerability. Honestly, I've struggled to make community a priority recently. When things get busy, it's so easy to say, well, I've got other things going on. School is more important. Work is more important. For me, letting Jesus define my identity means letting him decide what's important. And real community for him was always a priority. Third, do what Jesus did. 
welcome people in his name. There are so many people in this city who feel that they have no one that cares about them. Loneliness is endemic in Boulder, Colorado. If we become a people supercharged on this one idea, supercharged on the grace of God, then we can show anyone like that, whoever walks through that door, that they're wrong. That there are people who care about them. That there is a community who cares about them. Because they've found such overflowing worth in knowing Jesus that they can extend that to anyone that they need. And that's not just something that we do here at City Church. We take this show on the road. We've got a community night coming up this Wednesday at Boko Cider, Drake mentioned earlier. That's a great opportunity to invite people to community in a space that might feel like less pressure than inviting someone to church. Whether at Boko Cider or wherever you live, work, and play, you can serve people by listening to them and hearing their story. Invite them over for dinner and serve them because Jesus served us first. Lastly, if you've never made the decision to trust in Jesus before, just know that following him will change everything about the way that you see your life and the way that you find your worth. It certainly did for me. But you can start small. If you're interested, if something in this message has spoken to you, just consider your next steps. Maybe for some of you, that means asking yourself where it is that you find your sense of worth. Maybe you've seen, like I did, that the places you're running to to find your worth just aren't enough. If that's you, consider asking Jesus if he'll come into your life and lead you. He died for you, and his love is enough to fill you. Three days after Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he has conquered sin and death forever. He promised that whoever believes in him will share in his eternal life. If you're interested in taking a next step, we have people in the back who will be happy to pray for you. Thanks so much, guys.